Okay, super excited about this episode of Hope as an Anchor as Dr. Mark Strauss from Bethel University in San Diego is here with us on Hope as an Anchor. Dr. Mark Strauss is a New Testament scholar and New Testament professor and the conversation that we had was just a blast. So much laughing, a lot of challenging, just the conversation that we have was super challenging and I hope you will be able to feel like you were part of the conversation, chiming in and laughing with us. And so I hope you'll enjoy it. Okay. Uh, We are here with Dr. Strauss, Dr. Mark Strauss. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you got involved into being a New Testament scholar? Sure. Hi, Debbie. It's great, great to be with you. Um, yeah, my name is Mark Strauss, as you said. Um, I teach New Testament at Bethel Seminary. I'm the university professor of New Testament. have been there since 1993, so um, many, many years. Um, my areas of specialty really are biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, uh, Greek. Um, I, I've done a lot of work in the Gospels, and I've done a lot of work in Bible translation as well. That's been a real a real passion mm. of mine. Um, mm. Married, my big... 37 years to Roxanne, my beautiful wife, and I have three grown children as as well. We live in San Diego. Uh, Bethel's campus, Bethel University's main campus is in St. Paul, Um, but they previously had campus in San Diego. And now I've gone fully online with them. So I teach all my courses online from here in San Diego. So So. was that before COVID or after? Yeah, what was interesting was it was just before COVID. So we converted all our classes to online the year before COVID. So we were completely, completely prepared. It was barely a glitch (laughs) for us in terms of the switch over to COVID because, of course, everyone went online. At, at COVID, but we had been we had been online for a year before that, so it was yeah. really in some ways it was from the Lord that yeah. to, to prepare us for that. We think. Yeah, you, it sounds like you all had everything lined up and you all were set to go. You were like, "Oh, online, we know how to do this." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you all have been married. That's right. You all have been married thirty-seven years. Yes. For for those who are, you know, this this question just popped into my head you know 37 years is a long time in a in a time where we're seeing more sin divorce rates are skyrocketing and you know the lord's not in the center of relationships what what would you say to those who are you know struggling in a marriage or um wanting to be married i mean 37 years is a long time and you all have clearly put the lord first like what what is key like what how do how do you all make it work in your relationship well yeah, that's a great question. For us, I think it's a couple of things. I think one thing, it's commitment. It's commitment to the relationship and commitment to the other person and, mm-hmm. and making the decision, you know, um, to to be faithful to that that commitment. Yeah. And and then also realizing, I think, that relationships are not, the, the gifts of relationships that God gives us are not primarily about what we can receive from the relationship. It's what we can give to that relationship. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we talk a lot about what it means to be a servant. A servant means you're looking out for the best in the other person right. and you're willing to adapt and change for that because nobody's perfect. And, yeah. you know, you no and no one's easy to live with, <laughs> to be honest, or very few. <laughs> few people are and so learning to live with your differences and love despite those differences and love and and i think you know love grows much Mm. much deeper through years of commitment um 
you know, love isn't just a romantic feeling. It's something that grows even, even more uh, through the going, the ups and downs of relationships. And, mm-hmm. you know, as you go through hard times, it gets, I think it gets easier in some ways gradually because you've gone through it already before. Yeah. Um, and so commitment and servanthood, those would, to me would be the two most important. And then having the Lord at the center, of course, mm-hmm. is, is critical. So you said commitment and, and service, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, realizing that the relationship, your primary role in that relationship um, is to lift up the other person, not mm-hmm. to get your needs met. And we go into relationships, and, and of course, in our initial relationships, when it's you know all romantic and all wonderful, we're getting all our needs met. And that we think that's what the relationship is all about. Yeah. When in fact, God created relationships to learn what it means to serve like he serves. Yes. And so the reason we have relationships is to give, not to take. And if, if you think of the relationship as, as the context in which you're able to give and serve another person, then, then suddenly the goal of our relationship is no longer, you know, what I can get out of it. And as soon as I get stop getting my needs met, then I'm out of it. You know, that's that's mm. the way we view relationships today too often in this world. So it's almost like a worldly perspective if we don't have that very perspective of what you just described, commitment, service, and meeting the needs of the other person. And I've heard someone say, like, marriage is a picture of the gospel, like how Christ fought for us. I mean, he views us as the bridegroom, and then when he comes back, it's a wedding day. And so Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, as you said, I I love that, the commitment, the service, and how can I best serve and meet the needs of the other person, not so much about me. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And exactly what Christ did, Philippians chapter 2, you know, says that, that, that he wasn't thinking of himself he was thinking only of others, and and yeah. if we focus on others, um, then then that relationship will thrive. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. Thank you for sharing. I didn't realize you were married thirty seven years. I was like, oh, I want <laughs> I would like to hear. I would like to hear. So we have you on to. So in the last episode, we talked about the reliability of the New Testament, and I know you have a lot of research and you have poured a lot of energy and studies into the reliability of the New Testament and just all of your scholarly research on that. And so I know when I had emailed you, I was like, can we talk about the Apographa? Can we talk about like how the books of the Bible got selected and and all of that? So that's basically the gist of what this episode will be about. But um, before we dive into that, I know you had you had uh, worked with Lee Strobel, uh, the former Chicago journalist, uh, who was a very adamant atheist on the search to refute Christianity and uh, put down the name of Christ and just show he, like, it's just not true. And he ended up becoming a Christian. So I know mm. you've worked with him. Uh, sure. What has that been like, working with him, and what all have you, have you done with him? Yeah, um, and it's been a while now, but but yeah. Lee's a remarkable person, a, a, just a real genuine person. Um, yeah. I, I think that that authenticity is what really came through to me. Is is you know sometimes Christian celebrities are sort of high and on a pedestal, and uh, mm-hmm. not Lee's not like that at all. Just very down to earth and just a, just a real and authentic person. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to know him actually. I think probably I'm um, through my editor at Zondervan, Jack Kuhachik. 
uh, Jack uh, Lee was writing some books for Zondervan and um, the Da Vinci Code came out and I, I think and and he was going to do a video series on the Da Vinci Code and so I think Jack gave him my name he probably said something like you know Mark is not that bright but he's he's very clear <laughs> thinking it <laughs> something something like that probably um, but in any case um, uh, Lee asked me to do the the da vinci code video and that went really well and so after that mm. he actually did his case for christ he turned his very successful best-selling book the case for christ into a video um, and they must have liked what i did with the da vinci code because um, they came back to me for the the case for christ and so we did in, uh, several videos that went into that the case for christ and and uh, lee came to san diego and we videoed them here this was some years ago now but yeah so that that it, um, has has been my relationship with him. We then had him come and speak at Bethel um, after that a couple times, and so. Okay. But that's that's been a he's he's had a, just a really profound ministry in terms of um, apologetics. Yeah. So, so when you and, all... and really bringing apologetics apologetics into a, a a popular audience that can yeah. clearly understand it, I think that's been his great gift. So when you all recorded that in San Diego, was it like a documentary series of like? The case for Christ, the case for, because I, that's how I came to find you. It, I think it was through that, I was watching that documentary when, when I was doubting 12 years ago and I, like I wrote your name down and then I did my research. Oh, he's at Bethel University. And so that's when I started emailing you over a decade right, ago. Right. So I think it was that series. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably the case. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he did the case for Christ. And I think he did some others after that. Um, but that was after the, the the Da Vinci. I believe it was after the Da Vinci Code, if I have my memory okay. correct, okay. Um, that he went back and did um turn turn the book into a video yeah and then later the movie came out this is separate from the dramatization of his life which is the movie the case for christ yeah and that was significant that was just fairly recently yes yes that's a great movie by the way that is i think i watched that last last spring that's a phenomenal mm -hmm. movie how they just the dramatization and uh, his wife's role and all right. of his research right. His meetings with Dr. Habermas and I think Dr. <laughs> William Craig and I, just, I was yeah. like, this is so yeah. cool. Like I know these people, but um, <laughs> I've gotten to talk to them. This is so neat. Um, so do you think the Da Vinci Code is still a problem today in our world? Like people are still skeptical or not so much? Well, the Da Vinci Code, I don't think is itself as much of a problem the issues that come in the da vinci code are still areas of debate uh, and, you know they'll they'll crop now crop up now and then questions like the the apocryphal literature the the new testament apocrypha the gnostic gospels mm -hmm. you know those those kinds of things even though i think the da vinci code ultimately was pretty pretty much discredited i think you know i think the new york times even ran an expose on it showing how inaccurate it, it was ultimately and when that happened people began you know no, people just tend to swallow things hook line and yeah. line and sinker they don't even, you know if, if someone in authority says it they believe it um and and so ultimately i think you know at first it was this big sensation then people said well it's just it's just a novel it's not really true and i think mm. but but certainly many of the issues related to the da vinci code that were brought up in the da vinci code 
um, continue to surface. Um, you know, almost every Easter and sometimes at Christmas, you'll get a, a headline of, you know, this amazing new sensation, the body of Jesus discovered, or, you know, these, yeah. these crazy claims that someone is, is making. And it, it just, it's just to catch the headlines because, yes. you know, people want to papers, I think. Right. So I, re- I think I told you this last year when I watched the Da Vinci Code, it was years after I had become a Christian. I was like, this is the dumbest movie I've ever seen. Like, if you can just do the research, you can refute all of this, everything yeah. that is written. But, um, but people still have questions, as you said, like about the Apographa. Sure. And w- one of the questions that I had um, and that other people have asked me about, it, it wasn't paramount for me when I was doubting 12 years ago. But I was like, oh, it, it would be a good, you know study topic to go through um how were the books of the bible chosen to be part of scripture because it wasn't just handed down to us from heaven from god uh but it's you know we've had the we have the scribes it, and you know we we it was carefully selected and you know there's a reason why the apocrypha is not part of it but before we get into the apocrypha like can you go over what is the canon and how were the books of the bible chosen to be part of scripture. Sure, you bet. And I think you might hear a a slightly different perspective here than you hear elsewhere, because Mm. um, I think I I have a view um, that may not be what you'll always find in sort of the standard apologetic uh, textbooks. Um, We often talk about, you know, the the councils, um, the, the church councils, and some people have this idea that some church council decided which books to be in the Bible, and this was established at a certain point. Uh, but really, you don't have a full list of all 27 books until um, well into the third century, maybe even the early fourth century. And that's disturbing to many people because, because you know, even though we have lots of the books named earlier as being authoritative, we don't have a full list until 300 years after after Christ. Um, and and sort of that's when the the councils ultimately said this this is it and that's a lo- that's a long mm-hmm. time but I think we misunderstand the nature of the canon um, and we have to start with the question of what makes a book part of the canon what makes a book part of the canon is it because some council declared it to be part of the canon or is it something intrinsic to the book itself mm-hmm. uh, the great New Testament scholar Bruce Metzger said something like this he he said. Um, the Bible is not a, an authoritative collection of books. It's a collection of authoritative books. Let me re- say that again. The Bible is not an authoritative collection of books. In other words, it's not a collection that was declared to be authoritative by mm-hmm. some council. It's a collection of authoritative books. So the authority lies in the books themselves, not in some council that made them part of the Ah, canon. mm -hmm, See? mm -hmm. And so when does a book, when does a book um, become authoritative? When does a book become the inspired word of God? Mm. Well, the simple, the answer to that is when it is written, right? Because all scripture, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is inspired by God. God So a book becomes the the authoritative word of God. A book becomes part of the canon when it's written, not when some council makes a decision later on that it's going to be. And so then it really is the church only recognizing over time which books are part of it. 
And that's when things get complicated, because if you think about it, this is the this is the day before published works this is the day before the Internet, the day before any kind of social media. And so books took a very long time to be copied by hand. Yes. Then to be passed down one by one from church to church to church. And right. so no one said, OK, there's going to be 27 books, so let's gather them all. It was gradually these books were written, gradually they were copied, gradually they were disseminated. Well, that took hundreds of years to do. So then we say, oh, so the canon wasn't established till the fourth century. Well, no, that's that's not right. The canon was established when the book was written. But then gradually over the next 300 years, the church recognized because it read and it it recognized the voice of God in the in Mm. the in those books. Mm-hmm. In other words, believers filled with the Holy Spirit recognize the work of the Spirit in these books. Ah. So a book becomes part of the canon when it's written. It doesn't matter when ultimately the church recognizes. So when we say, oh, you, you know, this council or this council or this council, yes. that's fine. That's yes. fine because that's the recognition of it. But that's not the reality of the canon. Yeah. The canon was established when books are written. So all 27 books, as soon as Revelation was written, probably the last book in the New Testament, the book right. of Revelation was written, we you had a 27 book canon it just took a while for the church to recognize that and yeah. to understand how many books there were, there were going to be and then then we don't really we sometimes talk about tests of canonicity it had to be written by an apostle or or someone close to the apostles it had to be written you know had had to have the mark of authority had to be accurate well all those things are true but all those things are really a result of the canonization or the result of the inspiration of the book yeah the book is inspired by God, therefore it is authoritative, therefore it's closely connected to Jesus and the apostles, etc. But I think mm-hmm. the real question is when, you know, the, the real issue is that a book becomes part of the canon mm-hmm. when it's written. Mm-hmm. And then it take it naturally, in a context like that, takes, takes time for the church to recognize mm-hmm. those books. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're saying... Like timeline is important. The the like the win and the the win in that aspect. Like when it was written, and not so much the the authority of the church council, but seeing the pattern of the consistency of the Holy Spirit, how it was went, written, when it was written. That's essentially what you're saying, correct? Right. It's it's a fundamental starting point. Yes. We'll often say, uh, if you open a book on the canon, and often say, what are the tests of canonicity? In other words, what are the tests the church used to determine canonicity? That's the wrong starting point, for mm. my opinion. The real starting point is when a book became part of the canon was when it was written. It's a, it's mm. it's inherent authority yeah. as a book. I mean, it's inspired when it's written, yeah. not when the council decided it. And yeah. so we tend to focus on the end process. We tend to focus on the, the tests of canonicity and assume a book is not is not part of the canon until those tests are brought to bear on it and and that it is declared Mm. to be part of the canon. Mm -hmm. And I would Mm -hmm. say that's the wrong order. The order is start with the inherent authority of the book Mm -hmm. and then recognize over time then those tests were brought to bear on it. Mm -hmm. But those tests didn't determine its canonicity. Uh, The the Holy Spirit determined its canonicity when it was written. So is is that, well, maybe my first question before I ask this one is, so when someone hears the word canon, oh, it's accepted in right. the canon, what what does that mean? Because they're like, what, right. what? I've never heard right. of that terminology. Yeah. That's fancy. Like, Can you explain what does canon mean? Sure. And maybe we should have started with that. I, I, I <laughs> Sorry, that's my mistake. <laughs> That my fault. Yeah, the word canon comes is the Greek, Greek word for a, a read. Uh, you okay. know, R E E D, a read, um, um, 
or a stalk, and it was used as a measuring rod, like a like a ruler kind of thing. And so yeah. it then became, metaphorically, the term became um, a standard or rule by which you judge something. So the canon is the standard or rule by which we consider which books to be authoritative. Mm, okay. So uh, the canon of scripture then came to refer to the body of books that are considered to be authoritative by the church. Okay. 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 And, and then that's why we focus on the end, the end product, because we say, okay, if these are the, st- the these are the standard, these are the books the church uses and acknowledges as authoritative. Um, but then, if we then ask the question, what makes a book part of the canon? Yeah, that becomes a question of whether it's it's a council decision or whether it's because the book was inspired by God. Okay, okay, that's a that's a great explanation. So with that, and you just you know, discussing, you know, how the when is really important of, of when these books were written. Um, let's go into, okay, so, so I've done a little research on the Apocrypha, um, and I have learned that the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, um, and I forget, I, I had it, I had to take you, you said you said Episcopalians, but I, I don't think they view the can. Uh, I don't think they view the Apocrypha in the same way that Roman Catholics and um, Eastern Orthodox do. do um, I okay. have to check on that. Okay, but, yeah. okay. I I just know that there are some yeah. denominations that that read it, but then of course you and I and so many believers across the globe were like, no, that's not part of Scripture. So right. can you go over? What is the Apocrypha? Like, sure. And maybe explain why these books aren't part of Scripture, but yet it's right. accepted to the, in, in part of the, in some of the entities of the Catholic Church. Right, right. And there is some confusion as to what the Apocrypha is. And, and that's because the term can be used a lot of different ways. The word apocryphal, the adjective, can mean a book that is not, is not original or it's not authoritative or is a later kind of book. The, the, the word means hidden. But, yeah. but in any case, the, the term, what, what is often confusing is what we call the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha, capital A, um, are those books that are considered by the Roman Catholic Church to be authoritative but are not accepted by the Protestants. Now, actually, the Eastern Orthodox Church does have the Apocrypha, but the books are not identical to the Roman Catholic Apocrypha. So there's this okay. body of literature. The Eastern Orthodox Apocrypha is actually somewhat different than the Roman Catholic mm-hmm. Apocrypha. So the Apocrypha is a, is a fairly fluid term in that, in that way. Um, in the sense that exactly what constitutes the Apocrypha is different within different traditions. Mm-hmm. But okay. in any case, let me take a step back and say, there are when we talk about the Apocrypha, capital A, we're talking about Jewish books written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right. These are Jewish books between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's also what we call a New Testament Apocrypha. Those are books, later Christian books, written after the the New Testament books were written. That's a totally different body of literature. No group, the Roman Catholics nor the Eastern Orthodox, no Mm. group accepts them as authoritative. No Christian denomination accepts them as authoritative. Is the New Testament Apocrypha like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene? Yes, yeah, those are some of them. There's a whole body of literature, um, all kinds of Gospels, Gospel of Peter, uh, Gospel of um, 
Nicodemus. There's all there's there's um, letters as well as books. Okay. And th- that's the Apocrypha New Testament. That has nothing to do with the Apocrypha, capital A, which okay. we talk we're talking about as authoritative. Sure. Those are later books, entirely separate. You can buy copies of them, of course. There's a New Testament. Apocrypha, several editions of New Testament Apocrypha, and they're a huge different diverse body. And you know, some people will put certain books in that and not other books. But it's those are basically later Christian books, are written okay. within Christian circles. The Apocrypha that we're talking about are Jewish books written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And and you know, these these books are just really they're all different kinds of books their history their narrative their poetry their wisdom literature there's yeah. a whole range of different kinds of books and it's basically a, a large body of jewish literature um and there's nothing wrong with these books we use them all the time i have a copyright you know right behind me here okay. um we, we we protestants tend to get apocryphobic we're afraid of these books as though they're sort of dangerous or something mm. and um, and they're they're not really dangerous. They're just they're just Jewish books written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They help us a great deal. They inform us a great deal about the world of the New Testament. Okay. Um, and Christians have always used and honored these books because they are they're Jewish works that help us inform us. And some of them are religious. Many of them are religious books, so they're mm-hmm. devotional. And so it would be like buying a Christian book that you find to be very edifying and uplifting. Mm. Christians mm-hmm. use these books just like they use scripture in many ways. And so when you say, did the, did the church consider them part of, part of scripture? Well, I would say, no, they didn't, but they certainly honored and revered these books, both in Judaism and in Christianity. Mm. And so there was, among some groups, they honored them more than others. And, and so throughout early church history, you've got these books showing up as part of, part of Christian, Christian writings, mm-hmm. but did they consider them authoritative scripture that's the question and i think the answer to that would you could you could say some did and some didn't right it wasn't till the it wasn't till the council of trent in the 1600s in response to the protestant reformation that the that the apocrypha was declared by the roman catholic church to be authoritative scripture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so before that they were certainly honored and revered and so forth but, but they were not viewed in the same um as they are today uh, before that they were not viewed as authoritative scripture even then they were called deuterocanonical deutero means secondary okay so they were a second canon so even the roman catholic church recognized there was a a, an original canon which is our 27 books of the new testament 39 books of the old testament there was an authoritative canon um, but these were secondary, deutero, or a second canon beside the first. They still had authority, according mm-hmm. to the Council of Trent, mm-hmm. but it was not. They weren't quite the same as the the original canon. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they, in other words, they recognized sort of a distinction between these two. So it wasn't until the 16th century that they were actually declared to, to be part part of the canon. And now you go back and you'll hear this a lot. You go back and look at some early manuscripts, um, codex. Um, um, Sinaiticus, for example, one of our earliest New Testament manuscripts, it has the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it has a number of apocryphal books. Mm-hmm. And so there's no doubt that there, in terms of precisely what the canon was, um, was in some de- debate. Um, these books were honored and used, even though even though we we don't we recognize they were not viewed quite as the same as the Old Testament. Um, or or the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So it is a, a little bit of a hazy as to who who thought they were authoritative. Well, 
people were using them. And so whether they viewed them as scripture or not is, is a, is a debate, certainly a debated, debated question. Sure. Um, sure. So you say you have a copy of the Apographa and there, there's wisdom in it. And so are, is what they're writing like, Oh, it's not part of scripture, but you're saying it's okay to read, but just don't well, see it as scripture. Certainly, you'll read a long. You have to read a lot of the apocrypha to find any heresy, because there's very, it's very. It's for the most part, it's just good Jewish Jewish literature. So, and Jewish the, the easiest okay. way to to get the apocrypha is to um, buy a Roman Catholic Bible, because Roman Catholic Bibles, I've got one right here, have yeah. the apocrypha in them, and they're they're integrated. Some of them are integrated within the Old Testament. Some of them come mm -hmm. between the Old Testament and the New Testament, sure. depending how it's. It's formatted. But again, it's it's I, I would much rather Roman Catholic read a Bible with the Apocrypha than not read the Bible at all. You know, it, mm. I mean, it's there's really very little wrong with it. We are sort of afraid of it in, Pro okay. in Protestant circles because of the controversy. Okay. So I would just kind of shrug and say it's not a big deal. Now, there's a whole nother I should add. There's a whole nother body of literature. These books were particularly revered, the ones that eventually became the Apocrypha. But there are hundreds and hundreds of other Jewish books written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay. And we call those books, here's another word, a technical word, the, the pseudepigrapha, the pseudepigrapha. Okay. I don't know if you've heard that term. Okay. Pseudepigrapha are, refer to all those other books written between the Old Testament and the New Testament, almost all Jewish, though some are early Christian writings. Um, and they're also helpful for understanding the world in which the, um, the New Testament arose. And so that's a whole other body of literature that you hear. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason, the only distinction between the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha, they're all intertestamental books. But the only difference is the Apocrypha, those books came to be viewed ultimately as part of the canon in the Roman Catholic Church. That's the only difference between the, those two bodies of literature, the Apocrypha mm -hmm. and the Pseudepigrapha. And you can also buy copies of the Pseudepigrapha. It's been brought together in collections. These are various diverse works, but it's about two large encyclopedia-sized volumes make up the, the Pseudepigrapha. So is the Pseudepigrapha one that you are, like you're saying, the capital A Apocrypha, which is written between the Old and right. New Testament, there's wisdom in it, you don't seem as concerned, like... But what about the pseudepigrapha? Is there still like... Ooh, I would like, say the same thing about the pseudepigrapha. Okay. I would say the same thing about the pseudepigrapha. Just Jewish literature and some Christian literature written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You read every, you should read everything critically. In other words, read sure. everything with an eye towards recognizing that these people who are writing these things may, may not be right. They might be wrong in certain things, but it's not evil. It's not satanic. It's mm -hmm. not going to destroy your faith. Mm -hmm. It's going to inform. I mean, it would inform your faith as to giving you a better understanding of what was going on between the Old Testament How and the New Testament. So why why was that not accepted into the canon? Like if it's if it shut if it gives us so much information about what happened in the in between, like why is that not part of it? Because it wasn't inspired by God. I mean, it mm. was just like the apocrypha, it wasn't yeah. inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now the apocrypha, you read the apocrypha, these might be particularly helpful books for some, and and maybe a, a higher level of a you know. Um, a, a spirituality, many of the pseudepigrapha, but mm -hmm. in some ways, it's really a matter of who had what, who had what books, and who, you know, who was reading what books, who distributed them. Um, it, it really, in many ways, came down to different communities who who had access to mm -hmm. these various books mm -hmm. and, and who viewed them with with higher or lower levels of mm -hmm. authority. Mm -hmm. So, I, it, you know, the situation as, as scholars, 
recognize the situation is always a little more muddy than we would like it mm-hmm. to be. You know, we as Christians mm-hmm. want it to be absolutely clear cut. We want the cannon to drop out of the sky on, sure. you know, and, and just just land in a complete form. It's just not history is just not that clear cut, right. sadly. Right. And so ultimately, we recognize certain standard things like the, the four Gospels were written were, were written in before the end of the first century, and we're all viewed very quickly as the authoritative story of Jesus. That's mm-hmm. just so clear it's from early clear. church. Clear as day. Clear. The, the letters of the Apostle Paul were written early and were, you know, viewed very early and recognized as authoritative. Right. Then some of the other books took a while. I mean, they just took a while to be recognized as authoritative. They took a while to be accepted as that. And so we just have to accept that. And I think yeah. if we want a, a neat and tidy package, we're in the wrong business here because history right. is never quite as neat and tidy as we'd like right. it to be. And just you touching on, you know, when you're reading through scripture, for those of us who've been followers for a while, you can kind of see and the Holy Spirit will prompt you like and, and tug you like this. This really is God breathe. This is really part of scripture. Yeah, does that make you've sense? Hit exact, like, you've hit exactly on the point. Yes. I always tell my students, you know, if, if you're concerned about the Gnostic Gospels, read them. If you're concerned oh. about the Apocrypha, <laughs> read them. Go ahead and read them. You'll see. They just don't have the value. So I mean, it's the Holy yeah. Spirit within you recognizing the Spirit. That's yes. exactly right. I couldn't have concluded that this this session, this part of the session any better than you just did. <laughs> I mean, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. It's yes. the Holy Spirit is the key. And, yeah. so, and that's why I want to go back to the you know, to the the basic test of canonicity is mm. the inspiration by the Holy Spirit. Yes. So it's Christians with the Spirit recognizing the Spirit in these documents mm-hmm. that that that, that um, is really the key, I think, in terms of the canon. And then there will be people, you you know, they'll they'll be like, well, how do I know it's the Holy Spirit? You're just it's, it's someone that that I've talked to who's discipled me when I first became a Christian. Uh, her name is Miss Darty. You just you feel this nudge, like you, you just you feel this tug. It's just a it's yeah. an indescribable knowing, and you just feel this mm. tuggingness in your heart, and just but but it's kind of indescribable. Like how would you right. how would you describe that to someone about like when when you're reading through Scripture and you feel the Holy, you know it's the Holy Spirit. Like how would you describe that? Yeah, and and I think it, that's not only true; it's biblical because first in First John it says, "You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know the truth." Mm-hmm. You have an anointing; that's the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit in you. So, so it's the Holy Spirit in you that confirms. But it's the Holy Spirit, both that internal tug, but I think it's more than that because the Holy Spirit works through other means as well. The Holy Spirit works through the church community, for example, yes. because our brothers and sisters have the Holy Spirit as well. Yes. The Holy Spirit works through what we call the great tradition. That is the the councils and creeds passed down through the ages because this is the wisdom of the church that was filled by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit manifests itself not just in in just personal um, subjective, you know, within me, um, but he also works within my brothers and sisters in Christ and within the, the traditions of the church. So we need to listen to all three of those voices and that will be confirmation Ah. that this is the voice. I love that. I love you just said I'm reading for a second time a book on discerning the Holy Spirit, discerning the voice of God. And he is persistent. He will confirm. He will use uh, the community of believers. He will use his word. He will use his spirit and just and all these conference. Yeah, you've hit it. Yes, that's exactly what I read just on Sunday. So, (laughs) yes. So, okay, back 
to the Apocrypha. So we talked about the capital A Apocrypha, what was written between the Old and New Testament, the Pseudo Apocrypha, and then we have the New Testament Apocrypha. So why is the New Testament Apocrypha, like the Gospel of Thomas, can, can you, like, I've heard, like, when Lee Strobel, when I watched some videos of his, he would quote some stuff from the Gospel of Thomas, and it is bizarre. Like, you can just be like, <laughs> that's definitely yeah. not God-breathed. That's definitely yeah. not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, could you talk to us, like, what the New Testament Apocrypha is and why everyone just discounts it, That those in the scholarly field? Sure, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I have to say, not everyone just discounts it because the, the, it also is a, a range of different books because it's there's right. books that we would call orthodox. With, mm. They were written within what we call orthodox circles. In other words, they were written within conservative Christian circles that we would say were actually authentic circles of Christianity, not her heresy, for example. So a lot of the New Testament and Apocrypha are just sort of fanciful expansions of the story of Jesus or their... Um, um, additional accounts of characters, what happened afterwards to individual characters. There's a number of acts of different of the apostles. And the thing they have in common is really no scholars view them as authentic in the sense is written by mm. the author that they're named. The gospel mm. of Peter was not written by Peter. The gospel of Philip was not written by Philip. That is the, the right. apostles, Peter and Philip. Right. And everyone, liberal and conservative, recognizes that. The gospel of Judas, which was fairly recently discovered we knew about it because mm. a church father talked about it but it was mm. recently discovered that no one believes that was written by judas now what's interesting right. is when that came to light when that came to light i remember seeing the media reports saying that scholars view this as authentic huh. well they misunderstood they misunderstood what they meant by that mm. by authentic they meant it was actually not a modern forgery it was an ancient heresy in other <gasps> words it was a it was an ancient book of Gnosticism from the second century. We believe the Gospel of Judas was written in the second century, not that it was a modern forgery, a, you know, a pretend uh, gospel. Yeah. But no one believes it was, it was written by Judas, the actual disciple. You right. know, so, so that's, when you say authentic, you don't mean it was written by Judas. You mean it was written in the second century by, made up by, by Gnostic heretics. That's what we need, mean. So People misunderstood, the, the media misunderstood what scholars were saying that it was authentic. So no one believes that these gospels are written by the, the, the apostles themselves. They all view them as second century and later. Second century. They were written so much later because I think, uh, so the, the whole New Testament was probably written by 70 AD, correct? Before the, um, before the temple No, I would demolished. say by, by uh, probably Revelation was written after 70 AD. So num okay. some of the books I believe were written after AD 70, uh, but by the end of the first century, certainly all the New Testament had, had been written okay. by the nineties or so of the first century. Yeah. Okay. okay. But these books are all these books are all second century or much later. Some are third, fourth, and fifth. Now I should put a caveat on that. Some scholars believe the Gospel of Thomas may be a first century work. Okay. And that's heavily debated. That's heavily debated. But like you said, I would just say go ahead and read it. You know, you'll see how bad how bad it is, how bizarre it, it is. It doesn't. You know, it's not. We sometimes get scared. Oh no, people are going to read and they're going to convert to Gospel of you know, Thomasism or something like that. And it's just not, <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's yeah. not going to happen. So I would not be concerned with it. The, the gospels themselves are so much greater and so much more exalted in style and in message. Yes. And as you said, they were written so much later after the authentic four gospels were written and Paul's letters and, um, 
just the, the New Testament, what we have today, the Gnostic Gospels were written so much after that. So Right, right. And not by the first generation, not directly connected to the apostles. Right, no. right. What I found to be so interesting when going through historiography was the external sources that are confirming Jesus, his ministry, his crucifixion, his followers that that's overwhelming like i like josephus and just how he's saying yeah he had followers and people are saying he resurrected and he lived among the time of of jesus so i just i always found that to be interesting yeah and the you know there we have you know tacitus we have suetonius a couple of roman historians we have josephus who is a jewish historian now what people bother some people is we have very little in the sense of you know we have a few writings that mention him that are clearly not christian writings so these are not you know people pretending to be christians or something these are these are secular or or jewish writings that testify to his existence and testify to the basic structure of his life but then people say well why don't we have more if he's this incredible person well he wasn't this incredible person view of the whole Roman empire and the view of the, you know, the, the vastness of the Roman empire. He was a, you know, a prophet, a Jewish prophet um, in this backwater province of Judea. We wouldn't expect him to be little more than a blip on the radar screen of, of the ancient world mm. until his followers began to grow so much that they began to be noticed. And that's really when we see mentions of him being made is when the Christians are growing in number and becoming beginning to be viewed as a threat by the uh, the authorities in in terms of actually the impact jesus as a man made in in overall history you know it was almost it was almost nothing in terms of world history so we wouldn't expect to hear roman historians you know writing about him during his life and this kind of thing which is what some people seem to seem to expect yeah um but there were all kinds of popular figures philosophers and teachers and and uh, you know occasional miracle workers as well um that that you know are ba- barely show up on the screen until and after their followers um you know grow in grow in number so yeah. that's really when we see jesus beginning to be mentioned sure sure yeah it's all it's all fascinating it's it's all fascinating i try to um, which which leads to my next question, and this will probably be our, our last question to, to conclude um, to conclude this episode. But when you're when you meet with someone, and I know you've met with so many people um, within you know your your ministry, your work. But when you meet with someone who's doubting, um, mm-hmm. what do you encourage them to, to do? Like what what advice do you give them? What counsel do you give them? It's a great question. And and I would say doubting is not bad. Doubting right. is good because doubting in many ways re- results from critical thinking, from thinking through. And we have a reasonable faith. You don't yes. ever need to be afraid of the truth. And so, uh, you know, I would rather people pursue truth than pursue apologetics in some ways. Yes. Because if you're pursuing apologetics, oftentimes you're just trying to prove what you know to be right is right. Yes. Well, if you already know it to be right, you're, you're not going to discover anything different. So I, I would say it's fine to be open-minded that's a good thing to be open-minded to mm-hmm. read as widely as possible because ultimately all truth is god's truth i know mm-hmm. that scares some people but all truth so scientific truth is god's truth historical truth is god's truth yes um if, if you're seeking the truth then then um, you know and if you have access to to sources and and if you read widely and don't just listen to one person or one thing 
then I, I truly believe you will, you will find that truth because mm-hmm. it is all truth is, is God's truth. And, and, yes. and Christianity is a reasonable faith. Um, it's founded in historical events. Yes. Um, and yes. those historical events can be confirmed with a high degree of certainty. So I would be, I would say, don't, don't worry about your, your, don't be overly worried about your doubts. Just commit yourself to keep seeking and to yes. keep reading and to keep learning yes. and to keep listening mm-hmm. because, uh, and, and then to keep praying because the Holy Spirit is a key component in the confirmation of that truth. Give it time. Don't feel like you have to, you know, make an absolute final decision tomorrow, you know, yeah. con- continue. We're all growing in our faith. We're all yeah. learning as we read and, and better understand the truth of Christianity. Yeah. So just don't be afraid of those doubts. Um, you know, continue to pursue God, however, and continue yes. to pursue the truth. I love that. And that made me think of what 12 years ago, what I did, even though I, I felt in my spirit, okay, I think Christianity is true. Uh, even though I was doubting so badly, I still read the word. I, even though I was like, there's no point, but I could, I could feel that I feel it's not a right word. Just the spirit was doing something. And even though it took me eight months to make a decision while I was reading the word, I still prayed, but I had doubt in my mind. Um, but then like seeking you out, seeking my grandfather out, seeking, and reading all these books that helped. And then, you know, the spirit was using all of that, um, to, to help and encourage me, but I would, yes, seeking the Lord, seeking counsel. That was paramount for me, even though I was doubting. Yeah. And I think you said, you know, you don't mean feel, but I think feeling is part of it. You do recognize the presence of God, you know, the relationship with God is important and you will feel his presence. No, that's a great example. Your life is a wonderful example. If you have any questions in regards to today's episode, please go ahead and send an email to hope as an anchor at outlook.com. Uh, I'll go ahead and look at it and try to answer it as best as I can. And if I can't answer it, I will certainly uh, forward that over to Dr. Strauss with any questions that you all may have. We'll see you next time.